0: You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org.
1: Thank you, Jill, for a beautiful description of the ministries that the kids are supporting. What a wonderful thing to teach children to give you won't likely pick it up at age 35 unless you get saved at age 35. So thank you for that and wonderful things that are being done around the world. We were at Alliance Bible Fellowship last week with a lot of the Samaritan's people. So that, uh, in Boone, uh, that ministry is near and dear to our hearts. Well, welcome to Grace Community Church. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here. If you're here for the first time and you didn't know about VBS, you might have thought, what in the world's going on when you came in? But uh, it's an unusual Sunday, but a blessed Sunday to see all of our children and others as well who uh, have been worshiping the Lord over these last three days. And I hope you will be able to attend tonight. As Keisha said, register online. Now, (laughs) This, that's a good segue into an announcement. This is the last Sunday for which we are going to have open registration for church services. You won't need to register in the future. If You may notice that we have set back up for our full uh, capacity. Well, close to it anyway. Um, and not that we are anticipating full capacity in either service, but you will not have to register uh, in the future Well, in the next many Sundays, and hopefully we're done with all of that. But if we need to do it again, we will. And then beginning on August 1, we're going to go back to our old church times, 9 o'clock and 1045. You may have noticed that the services are getting a little bit longer as we go, and so we're having trouble with the transition. But we will go back to 9 and 1045, August 1. But for the next two Sundays... Believe that's all that's left in July. And the next two Sundays after this one, nine thirty, eleven o'clock. Just look for the announcements on Faith Life and on the website, Facebook. Uh, just two other quick announcements. Uh, because of the way our service was structured today, I need to mention a few more things. Our next Grace Connection class is July twenty-four and twenty-five, from nine to twelve a.m., nine a.m. to, to noon. On July 24th, Saturday, July 24th, we're going to be holding uh, three different classes on that one morning. Typically, we do this four Sundays in a row. But because of COVID, this is we're doing it this way, this time. And we will go over what our church believes, uh, how our church is structured. Elder rule is new to a lot of people. So if you are not a member of Grace and you're interested in either membership or just learning more about the church so that you can make a better decision about whether this is the place God wants you to be or not. Please sign up uh, for that. Go online and you can sign up for uh, Grace Connection class July 24 and 25. It doesn't. We don't automatically assume that you're moving toward membership if you attend the class, but it is required if you're going to be a member, And then one last thing. Many of you know that Harold Jernigan uh, went to be with the Lord this week. Passed from death to life. And the funeral will be tomorrow. Not here, but at Rose and Graham Funeral Home in Coates. Visitation starts at 1 o'clock, 1 p.m. And then the funeral will follow at 2 p.m. And I hope some of you will be able to be there for that. Harold, 90 years, young, and... Loved the Lord was such a kind man, uh, respectful man. He, he, he had some uh, qu- quite some experience in the service. Was awarded a distingu- a medal of distingu- distinguished medal of honor uh, in the Air Force, and would always call me Pastor. I'll I'll tell this tomorrow. But he, um, I would say Harold, please just call me Brad. He'd say, Okay, Pastor, and that's uh, a. <laughs> You know, it didn't exactly happen like that, but it's just the way it was. He would never call me uh, by my first name. Well, allow me to test your theological prowess, if you will. Complete this sentence. The first three rules or the first three principles of biblical interpretation are context, context, context. If you do not know the literary genre of the text that you're examining, the historical setting of the text, who the writer was, who the recipients were, why the letter was being written, if it was a letter, then you could easily over-spiritualize a text and come up with some rather zany interpretations. It's good to be specific when interpreting the text to know what you're talking about. At the same time, it is a blessing that we do not always know the circumstances that uh, inspired a particular text. Take, for instance, Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Was this thorn some sort of a physical infirmity? A lot of people think so. His eyesight was bad, so a lot of people think that it maybe disfigured his appearance. Um, Could it have been a psychological issue, a financial crisis, or even a struggle with sin? The answer is E. It could have been any of the above. And many more possibilities besides. It's a good thing we don't know what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. Because then we'd be saying, ah, well, that doesn't apply to me. We can all be encouraged that God's grace is sufficient for any crisis that comes our way. In today's text, Psalm 11, we're going to find another place in which Scripture is blessedly general in nature. We do not know the exact crisis in which David found himself, but we do know that it was serious. We know that something serious was going on when he wrote Psalm 11. David lays out two perspectives, two responses to crises that will serve us well in any situation that comes our way. Rather than reading the text this morning, we're going to do what we did several weeks ago and sing this psalm from the Psalter. So Dr. Calvert is going to come and lead us in singing Psalm 11.
0: You know, I'm going to ask you to stand. You could have preemptively stood. Uh, This song is set to the tune of Amazing Grace. So it should not be difficult for most of us to figure out how to phrase these things, but um, it may take you a minute uh, to adapt to these new words, to this old tune. But that's how the Psalter works. So let's sing together. Yeah. be seated.
1: Thank you, Pastor David, and thank you for singing Psalm 11. We'll read it as we go, but not as we normally do here at the first. So what were the circumstances that led David to write Psalm 11? It is possible that David wrote the Psalm when Saul was pursuing him. Or when there was talk of a possible assassination attempt after he was already king. That's probably, I would think that's a little more likely. Whatever the circumstances, David's advisors were encouraging him to get out of town. They were alarmed and advised him to leave Jerusalem. You get the sense in Psalm 11 that their response to trouble was panic. Look at verses 1 to 3. where David exposes hearts that did not trust God as they should. In Yahweh, I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have lifted their arrow to string, to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So we get an idea that this was a serious situation, whatever it was. We can picture David being approached by breathless advisors who were well-intentioned but frightened. They've caught wind of a conspiracy to overthrow the government, which would mean that not only would David die, but all his advisors would die as well. Their advice? Flee now. But David understood that there was a time to stand and a time to get out of town. Jesus avoided trouble. The apostle Paul avoided trouble. David avoided trouble at times. So it's not that that David was saying, well, it's always right to just stand. Jesus didn't always. Paul didn't always. But there was a time to stand. And all three stood when it was time, at the right time. In Psalm 11, panic seems to have been the source of the urgency. And none of the others, Jesus, Paul, nor David, did what they did out of panic. They did what they did because it seemed best to do it, and God led them to do so. It's no wonder that David's advisors were panicking. Look, when there is a good chance that there will be an assassination attempt, On the leader of the land. You don't know where that's coming from. You have no idea when, how, where. They would shoot from the dark. Satan loves to blindside us, does he not? You may be prepared for any number of frontal attacks. You may be prepared to... Resist this temptation or to to refuse making this mistake, but then he comes out of nowhere. You never see it coming. So what are your options? You can take yourself out of the war or you can stand and meet the attacks that come against you. And since we can only escape one war from another war, better than in our hearts we stand our ground. Fortunately, We stand our ground in community, not alone. We do this together, not by ourselves. I'm going to imagine that a number of you can identify with David's advisors. I surely do. Look, uh, the Olympics are coming up in a couple of weeks. We're going to see sprinters, we're going to see long distance runners. Um, when it comes to trials, I am an unusual athlete. I'm a long-distance sprinter. You know, running as hard and fast as and long as I can. Until the Lord says, uh-uh, stop it. You have to face this. Better that in our hearts we prepare to face what comes against us. So, let me ask you a question. When you need some comfort... Where do you turn? Do you say, I think I'm just going to watch the world news for an hour. And that's going to bring me comfort. You feel pretty good after watching an hour of the news. (laughs) Do you feel or do you fear that democracy might crumble or that justice will never be done in the land? That was the sentiment expressed in verse three. Now it's it's likely that David was repeating his advisor's words back to him in both verses two and three. Some people think oh just verse two and then they take verse three in a different way. but the quotation marks in the ESV, the quotation marks in the the song that we sang from the Psalter, a lot of your translations assume that these are the continued words, of the advisors. It, it, it's possible that David was musing about what would happen if his enemies were successful. Successful, It would have been understandable for David's colleagues to see him as foundational to Israel's success. And thus worth preserving at all costs. So that's more likely that they were saying, what, what will we do if the foundations, you are the foundation of the nation. What happens if something happens to you? David's hope, though, was not in political moves and counter moves. His hope was in Yahweh. Verses four through seven. Yahweh is in his holy temple. Now, very likely, Habakkuk was quoting David, just like David is going to quote Moses in Genesis from Genesis. But when Habakkuk said, the Lord is in his holy temple, let the the entire earth keep silent before him. There's a sense here in which he's saying, calm down. Yahweh is on the throne. Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test. Test. The children of man, Yahweh test the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For Yahweh is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, the upright shall behold his face. Now, it's important for us to remember who the righteous are and who the wicked are in the Psalms. The righteous ones are those who believe Yahweh's promises. And the wicked are are those who do not believe God's word. Those who are righteous are capable of sinning, as David did spectacularly at times. He sinned. And those who are wicked are capable of many good deeds. How God classifies people, though, is based on whether they believe him or not. It started with Abraham. It started before that. But we're told in the New Testament, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. It's not based on Abraham's good works, but on his beliefs. Since the time of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, we are labeled Either righteous or wicked. And by the way, we're labeled in heaven. It really doesn't matter where we're labeled anywhere else. We're labeled righteous or wicked based on whether we believe Jesus or not, whether we acknowledge our sinfulness and whether we acknowledge that Jesus died on the cross for us. It depends on whether we accept or reject his sacrifice on our behalf when he died on the cross. John three eighteen states it very succinctly. Whoever believes in him, whoever believes in Jesus, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So the default position for us from the time we're born is condemnation until... Something is done about our state, and that comes through faith in Christ. Now, I'm not talking about children, that's a whole different topic, and I do believe that children who are taken early or young will be in heaven with the rest of us. But for those of us who get to the place where we can make sense of it and we are going to go one way or another. Those who believe are not condemned. Those who do not believe are condemned already. So do not think, and this is what they've been learning about in VBS this week, do not think that once one believes in Jesus, that he can live any way he wants to. Belief in Jesus implies full-on Commitment and although we will sin until the day we die, our relationship with the Lord leads us to understand verse 4 that we are accountable to our Creator and Redeemer who sits in the heavens and observes the thoughts and doings of all. Yahweh tests the righteous not because He takes joy. In our hardships, because he is molding us into the image of Jesus. He is building our character through trials, not seeking to tear us down, but he's molding us to be shining lights in a dark world so that those who do not know him may see his glory through us. Let's admit it. Verses 5 and 6 are difficult. When I was thinking about what to preach on VBS day, I thought, well, this would be a good one, you know. His soul hates the wicked. Let him rain down coals. David's psalms were often written as a result of his reflection on a passage from the Pentateuch. No doubt when David affirmed God's decision to rain down coals on the wicked and he seemed happy that fire and sulfur would be their end, he was surely thinking about Genesis 19 when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of the people's sin and their rebellion against him and against his created order. So was David's desire for what seems like revenge... Misplaced? Christians have often been accused of being hateful and spiteful and excessively judgmental. And history confirms the validity of some of those accusations. We can't look back over the ages and say, boy, Christians have, have had it right when everybody else had it wrong all the time. Remember, Jesus reserved his harshest Words of judgment for self-righteous religious people who looked down on others. They were absolutely certain that they had it right and no one else did. And there is not, no wrath quite like the wrath of those who think they are doing evil to others as part of God's will. So a reluctance to embrace the spirit of verses 5 and 6 is understandable. What are we to make of this? First, we need to acknowledge that some, if not many, of the accusations that are, amount, that are mounted against God's people are attacks on their beliefs rather than on their actions, and thus they are attacks on the Lord. Sometimes we deserve the criticism that is aimed toward us. Sometimes we don't. Second, some of the differences in the Old and New Testament come into play. And next week, when we look at Psalm 137, which is even more difficult than this one, um, we're going to understand even more how to process the imprecatory Psalms or the Psalms in which the writer calls down God's judgment and curses on his enemies or on God's enemies. Next Sunday, we'll consider some of the differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament in the ways that God and his people respond to their enemies. And we'll see what is the same. There are a lot of things that are the same, but a lot of things that are different as well. And understanding those differences should direct us in our responses to those who are opposed to the gospel in a very different way than to to what David prayed, but we'll also understand that God's character is the same. And just because he is a gracious and forgiving God based on what Jesus did for us, it doesn't mean that he is no longer going to punish sin. So a third thing... To consider about these verses, in fact, is the sense that even though some of the calls for God to judge the enemies of his people in Psalms may seem reactionary and over the top. We must remember that this is God's word. And the Lord is serious about those who do not yield to his authority. So let's take a moment. Let's stop and hear from Derek Kidner. About the reasons we should neither be embarrassed by the calls for judgment that we find in the Psalms. Nor should we dismiss them as the impulsive rantings of an offended writer. I've talked to you about Derek Kidner before. For years I I looked for good commentaries on the Psalms. And Derek Kidner's got these two little teeny commentaries. And I thought, what can you say in that little space? This man can say more in that little space than most of us could fill volumes with great scholarship and ability. So Kidner's thoughts will be helpful to you, but you'll need to process these comments over time to receive their full value. And I'm going to put them on Faith Life, and I'll surely make them available to anybody who would like to read them later. Kidner writes, quote, The history of David who was the primary writer of the psalms of imprecation or psalms in which curses are called down on the enemies of God, the history of David gives proof enough that his passion for justice was genuine, not a cover for vindictiveness. There have been few men more capable of generosity under personal attacks as he proved by his attitudes to Saul and Absalom to say nothing of Shimei. And no ruler was more deeply stirred to anger by cruel and unscrupulous actions, even when they appeared to favor his cause. What David asked of God was no more and can certainly be no less than the verdict and intervention which a victim of injustice could expect from him. David himself, as king of Israel, the more seriously he took his ideal of kingship from God, as he says in 2 Samuel 23, 1-3, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, then the more understandable it was that he should slander him By underrating his abhorrence of evil. So when we say it really doesn't matter. Everything's going to be okay. then in a sense, we're slandering God. And his hatred of evil. And since we're all evil, born evil. As enemies of God, as we'll see in just a moment. What a beautiful, merciful thing God did in sending Jesus to take care of our sin. Do you get a sense of what Kidner was saying? It was David's cry for justice from a holy and perfect God that we see in these psalms. Indeed, one of the compelling arguments for God's existence is that deep within our hearts, we yearn for justice. We long to see things that are wrong made right, and the, and, 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 and the crimes against others be rectified. As stated, we're going to address this more fully next week, but it's good for us to remember what God did to change our status from enemies to beloved children. I know of no better way to jog our memory than to read from Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. through whom we have now received reconciliation. To Understand what Paul was saying. We were enemies of God, religious and irreligious alike. All of us, no matter who we were, no matter what kind of people we were, were enemies of God, bound for the same destruction, judgment, as those referenced in Psalm 11. Often hear people say, Oh, we need God to save us from ourselves. No, we need God to save us from Himself. He is holy and righteous, and we're standing in the path of judgment. And even though there was nothing in us to attract His attention in favor to our cause, this holy and righteous God. I don't know what you're hearing today. Wrath, full of wrath. But this holy and righteous God loved us enough to send Jesus to die in our place. And when Jesus is on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The wrath that was destined for us and that we deserve was being poured out on Jesus. And this is going to be imported in the last verse here. His face turned away from Jesus. Where are you, Father? The most unjust execution ever conceived, far more than anything else. Why? Why have you forsaken me? I've done nothing. Because he was becoming sin for us. And the wrath of God was being poured out on him. The love of Jesus to go to the cross to obey his father fully. The love of God in conceiving such a plan. And this will be one of the things that we'll talk about next week. Though we in our current mindsets tend to think how awful that God judges people. And sends people to hell for eternity. It's all part of a plan. And look. Look. Most of us, if we had the choice, would love to see fires of coal rain down on somebody at some point in our lives, anyway. Where do you think that heart for justice comes from? Well, we deserved it. We deserve the punishment. Jesus got in the way. (laughs) Best we hide behind the cross. We have been reconciled to God, justified by Jesus' blood, saved from the wrath of God, saved to life through Jesus' sacrifice. So shall we rejoice? I think there is cause. With as much abandon as these kids were singing this morning, we have that kind of freedom in our hearts Because of what has been done for us. Psalm 11 ends where it began. You'll see this often in scripture. Especially in the Psalms. It's called an inclusio theological terms. It begins and ends with the same thought. That's how you know. Units of thought in the New Testament as well. Often... An idea will be stated at the front and stated at the end, and everything in there is having to do with those with that primary thought. As you uh, let's let's read this. David can say with confidence in verse seven, for Yahweh is righteous; he loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. As you probably know. Chapter and verse divisions in the Bible, particularly the ones that that we have today, are are not inspired. They came over a millennium after the New Testament books were written. And sometimes in the New Testament you wonder, what in the world uh, were the editors thinking? But all in all, they did a really fine job dividing the verses up. The structure of the Psalms makes it easy to know where a new verse begins. So in Psalm 11, verse 7, David begins by acknowledging that Yahweh is righteous, which is why he loves righteous deeds. And by implication, he is displeased with unrighteous or sinful deeds. Now, remember, we're not made righteous by what we do, but we have been made righteous by faith in Jesus. And because we are righteous, we will typically Produce or perform righteous deeds. How? Because of, as the kids sang this morning, the power of God in us, the power of Jesus' death and resurrection. We are united with Christ, and that power enables us to do what we are incapable of doing for ourselves. And you may think, I just, I wish that were true. I wish I had that confidence. I wish I had that security. That I can conquer this sin. Well, you can't conquer this sin, maybe. But consciously think the next time, it's not me, it's the power of God living in me. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that allows me to die to this sin and rise to righteousness. Be raised to, to, to righteousness. Why wouldn't we want to live righteously? The upright shall behold his face. So what is your first thought when you read verse 7? Do you think, I, I'm so blessed that I get to come to God in prayer anytime and behold his face. Hebrews 4 would affirm that heart very Uh, very much, but there's more to it than this. It's not so much that God is there and it's like, cool, I get to go to God. Oh, it's like he has turned his face from this way to this way. And he's looking at us. We need to reorient our thinking. It's not what I can do for God. It's what he has done for me. Even the, you know, the the, the the visual aid for salvation. You've got these two cliffs and there's a chasm in between. God's over here. We're over here. How do you get to God? There's a cross. So you come through the cross. You come through Jesus to God. But what about, once again, reorienting? It's not so much that, oh, there's a bridge and I'll just walk across. No, God has come to us. And even though he's on his throne, he's in our midst. The Holy Spirit lives within us. And God is in our midst. It's not what we can do for God. It's what he has done for us. And then we will do for God. There are two perspectives in Psalm 11 and two responses to crises. One is a horizontal perspective, looking at the difficulties around us. The other is a vertical perspective, believing that God is on his throne and he's worthy of our trust. One panics and flees, while the other entrusts her life to the Lord's sovereign and gracious hands. You may be in a situation that has brought you right to the edge of the cliff in panic. It could involve your health, your employment, a relationship. Or fill in the blank. It's just like all the others. It doesn't matter what it is. God is addressing your crisis This morning, I know that you are praying for deliverance. And if I know about your crisis, I am praying with you. And it could be very likely that this week I will be calling you, panicking and asking you to pray about my crisis. But oh, that we would turn to the rock To King Jesus, because ultimately He is the King of Psalm 11 and all the Psalms. To behold His face. And to turn to Yahweh, to turn to God the Father. And bask in His pleasure that He has in us. Because of Jesus. When God looks at you, He sees Jesus. And He is pleased. And the miracle that you're praying for may change your circumstances. But worship will change our hearts. Let's pray. Father, not only are we a needy people, but we find ourselves often in crisis and we live in a day where all crises can be dealt with, with the resources and the people, the abilities that you have given us, that you have so graciously given our day. They can be dealt with until they, until they can't. Until uh, we've expended all our resources and we are still in great pain as some of our members find themselves in. Suzanne Lucas and others who were, who's just had surgery this week and, and others who are called to suffer in ways that would be difficult for anyone Lord relationships are broken we don't know how we're going to take care of our families there are all kinds of ways that we find ourselves in crisis but the steady calm assurance that Yahweh is on his throne he sees all things he's taking care of us a blessing. We yield our lives to you, our King, Jesus, head of the church, good shepherd, lover of our souls. We pray that that intimate knowledge of the creator and redeemer of the universe will encourage our hearts on this day And may we be reminded often of where our real peace and strength and comfort lies.
0: And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission.